there's still only one church. It has been God's plan from the beginning to be able to redeem man back to him. And man sort of, somewhere around 325, decided to take God's plan and to shape it into what he thought God's plan ought to be. It is our world, even that we live in, that is shaped by religious thought. We have a law on the books in the United States that if someone's in trouble and you get out and help them, and perhaps it is that, that they are uh, in some sort of medical emergency and you administer CPR and, and they end up passing away at the scene. That you are uh, not held responsible for that death. Do you know what that law is called? That's right, the Good Samaritan Law. Where'd that come from? Luke chapter 12. Our whole world is shaped by religious thought, whether that be actual Bible or what we want to put into a group of religious thought. Ask anyone walking down the street what happens when Jesus the Christ returns. You'll get one of a couple of answers. One, I, I don't believe in God or Jesus. You'll get that some. The dominating answer you're going to get is some sort of kingdom that's going to be set up. As if that kingdom doesn't exist now. Our world is shaped by religious thought. We never connect the dots with the first slide to the second slide. We never connect the dots that where we can see that you can't have one without having the other. What do you mean by that, preacher? Well, how about this? You can't have grace... Without God. It's an impossibility. You cannot have grace without God. We have uh, given a, a, a school book definition to grace as an unmerited favor. And, and while that is true, it doesn't define it in, in our minds as well as it should. As we say, it's unmerited favor. Yeah, one... What does unmerited mean? Two, what does favor mean? So we've defined a word with two other words we don't know. In reality, it's an opportunity offered by God to follow His will and be saved by His plan. Without that favor, without that opportunity, brethren, we are L-O-S-T. And we have no hope. Turn over to Genesis chapter 6. You'll see the first time the word grace is used within the, the totality of the Scripture. And while you're making it to Genesis 6, write down this for a little bit of homework. Go home today. Call your friend who may or who is not a part of God's church, who's a part of the religious world. Ask him what grace is. See, if you get an answer, and number two, what that answer is. Then call your next friend, who's a member of, of the religious world, 
and ask him what grace is and see if you, one, get an answer, and two, get the same answer as number one. We don't have any idea. The world in general doesn't have any idea what grace is. And the fact of the matter is you can't have it without God. Now look at Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 8. And Noah found, there's your word, grace. Notice, notice where? In the eyes of God. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. If you'll read the first seven verses there of Genesis chapter 6, here's the backstory to verse number 8. God looked around this entire world and couldn't find another group of people on which he would, would, would pour out his grace. Except Noah. His wife. His three sons and their wives. Noah and his family found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so because of that, he was saved, right? No, he was not. When you and I look at Hebrews chapter 11, we read about verse number, uh, I'm going to call it 8 or 9, it's right around there. That by faith, Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his family. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 22, it will tell you that everything that God said to do to Noah, Noah did. But preacher, did, didn't he have grace already? Wasn't grace extended to him already? It absolutely was. But look at grace defined one more time. An opportunity offered by God to follow His will and be saved by His plan. All falls under two words, unmerited favor. He had the opportunity that no one else in the world was given. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and we're going to begin in verse 8, but we're not going to stop there, even though most of the religious world does. Don't you know, preacher, that, that uh, for grace are you saved by faith and not by works, lest any man should boast? I understand that's there. Matter of fact, I understand that's there. Continue reading. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in God unto good works. That we should walk therein. Therefore remember that ye being Gentiles in times past. Remember where you were. Then the opportunity to obey, and now where you are. And those things produce faith. And works. And it is not in verse 8 of, of Ephesians chapter 2, here is not what you read. For by grace alone are you saved. Or even you are saved by faith alone. Or even, even down to verse 10, you're saved by works alone. Grace without God 
doesn't exist because God is the source of grace. He is the source of the opportunity that I have to be obedient to Him and to live a faithful life. You can't have grace if you don't have God. It'd be just like trying to have Tom without Jerry. Notice this one. You can't have love without law. Just doesn't exist. Love defined as unconditional positive emotions. Okay. What? Ladies, especially those who are married, let me ask you a question. Do you love your husband? Yeah. I thought you were shaking your head no. You were moving your hair. It got me scared there for a minute. Are there times you just want to choke him? Now, don't be scared to shake your head yes here. Do you still love him? Yes. Is it always an unconditional positive emotion? What is love in the Bible? What does it mean? Does it always mean God just looks at me and says, well, you can't do anything with Billy, bless his heart. God, he just, he just sweeps that stuff under the rug for me because, you know, I can't do any better. Mm. So many times throughout the religious world, that's exactly how it's taught. God loves you where you are and who you are. Let me tell you this. God loves exactly who you are, but you can't stay where you are. Not and be acceptable. Love, really according to the Bible, is to provide all good things for every person, even if they choose not to accept the gift. The little funny word out there to the, to the right that you look at and go, no idea what that says. That's the Greek word agape. We've probably looked a hundred times at the ideas found within the New Testament that there are four Greek words for one English word that we use. Eros uh, is a, a, a love that would be purely physical between a man and a woman. Uh, you have storge, which would be a love that would be between siblings. You have uh, phileo, or rather storge, would be a love uh, between uh, uh, those who are married, that, that, that connected uh, love that, that I'm going to make sure she's taken care of, she's going to make sure he's taken care of love. Phileo is a love between siblings. That's where we get uh, the, the idea for the city named Philadelphia, the city of what? Mm-hmm. The key there is brotherly. Then you have this one here, agape. has nothing to do with the way I feel about anything. It has no... E- How about this? The love that's found in the Bible... Now, now this is going to cook your grits, I know, but pay attention here. The love that's found within the Bible that oozes from God through every page of the Bible has absolutely nothing to do with emotion. What about that? We put love in its general form in the idea of ideas and emotions. 
And God says, this love that I have is not based on emotion. It is based on choice. And my choice for you, God would say to us, is that I want you to do those things that are right. And I'm going to give you the opportunity through grace to do those things. There's a wild card in this deck. And the wild card in this deck sits right in the very seat where you're sitting. Because you can choose not to do it. You can choose not to accept the gift that's been provided. Suppose Derek called me up tomorrow. I'm going to make sure this happens. And he says, Hayes, if you'll come over to where I'm working, I got $1,000 cash that I'll give you. I'm going to be there. If I chose just to stay here, is it mine? Do I, do I get that then? No. That's offered from a source to me if I will accept it and accept those terms. Brethren, if, if you and I don't understand anything other than John 4, uh, 1 John 4, uh, verses 6 through 8, that God is love, then we need to understand what love is. Love is to provide all good things, even if a person chooses not to accept it. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Between 12 and 14, those two verses or those two chapters in 1 Corinthians, where Paul would be discussing those spiritual gifts, he takes a moment to take a break and say, listen. All of these gifts ought to be motivated by something. That's the entire chapter. These gifts and, and the way that this church operates ought to be motivated by something. And what is that? Love. It talks about the, the characteristics of love and how it's kind and gentle, how it doesn't do these things, how it doesn't puff itself up. And how all of these spiritual gifts one day will seemingly fade away and that what's going to be left is faith, hope, and love. And that the greatest of those is, by the way, the greatest of those is, by the way, that weird little word right there that we don't know. Not anything emotional based, but that that is based off of the choice that I have so that you can have the best opportunity to serve God. Read in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 44 how God loves us all. It rained at your house last night? rained at my house. What if I told you that my neighbor is not associated with the church or with religion at all and doesn't care anything about being associated with that, and it rained at my house, but his house is just as dry as a bone. doesn't happen that way. God still provides those good gifts. He gives the rain to the what? Just and to the unjust. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. In verse number 6 for just a moment. Uh-oh, I'm going the wrong direction. Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time Christ, 
died for the ungodly. For scarcely would a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But, now here's the word of contrast, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemy, or when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we now have and receive the atonement. There are two or three things I wanted to make sure I got to in that particular section and idea. The fact that Jesus Christ dying for us on the cross is forever and eternally linked with verse number 11 and the word atonement. That idea of atonement goes back to the garden. That idea of atonement goes all the way back to God giving out grace and having it be accepted by mankind. And if I want to stand before Him justified, I'll be atoned before Him. Now, how am I going to do that today? I'm going to access the blood of Jesus the Christ, but I can't do that without knowing how. Where do I find that? Hmm. You know what would be extremely helpful? If God had a plan for man, and then if he wrote that down in a book that I could carry in my pocket or on my cell phone or in every room in my house, what if he wrote that, if he wrote that plan down in a book, would you read that book? Okay, now we're going to go from preaching to meddling. Are you ready? He has. Have you? Do you know what it says? And why it says what it says? We can't have grace without God. We can't have love without the law of God teaching us and showing us how that love is regulated. And notice this last one. You can't have salvation without sacrifice. I believe all men, all men and women within the religious world want salvation. I believe their desire is that they do not find themselves on the wrong side of the tracks with God when it's all said and done. Here's how salvation is mentioned most of the time in the religious world. God changes man so that man doesn't want to follow through sinful actions. You notice anything odd about that definition? You tell me who's doing all the work in that, in that, uh, in that uh, definition of salvation? Listen, if I stick here, that God does all of this, and I find myself on that final day in, in a sinful state, not in a saved state, Why can I not just blame it on God? Why didn't you do that for me, God? It's salvation that God changes man's actions. 
No, it's not. The, the reality of the Bible would tell you this. Man's desire to follow God changes how he responds to temptation because temptation is still going to come. It's man's desire to follow God, not God superseding and going past the natural to change man and say, you're never going to be tempted again. That's a lie. You can show up in this room when the church meets in this room and be tempted. Turn over to Hebrews chapter number 10. You can't have salvation Unless you have sacrifice. We're going to read for just a moment here also. As Hebrew, the Hebrews writer begins to write these things, he starts out with the premise that the New Testament system of faith and everything associated with that New Testament system of faith is better than the old. It is predicated and based on the fact that the sacrifice in the old uh, was not good enough. Now he's going to reach the height of his argument here in Hebrews chapter 10. Of the sacrifice not being good enough. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. Stop right there. I want you to understand what he's talking about when he's talking about those good things to come. And the law. He's contrasting the old law and the New Testament. That old law was a shadow of the good things to come. The Old Testament is a shadow of the New Testament. My wife hates the phrase type. Plug ears for two minutes. Really, she, does, she doesn't mind type. She hates antitype because it sounds too much like A-N-T-I, anti-type. Antitype is exactly what you think of when you think of 35-millimeter film. Who, who's old enough to remember a 35-millimeter camera? And you had to put it in that little bag at Walgreens and send it off to who knows where. And about a week later, some pictures came back that may or may not be yours and Within it was a little, those little strips, those little plastic strips, what were those called? Negatives, right? And if you needed some more pictures, what'd you do? Took those little negatives, right, and gave them to somebody else. When you look at new, the Hebrews chapter 10, you see that, that old law being compared with that new law. You just compare negatives with pictures. You want to get the full picture? You're going to have to use that negative. You're going to have to go through that Old Testament to get to that New Testament. And he says, for the law, those negatives of having a shadow of good things to come of the pictures. You remember you had to wait that 10 days or so? Mm-hmm. And not the very image of those things. It's not the picture, but it's where it came from. Can never with the sacrifices from the Old Testament, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then they would not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. And yet every Yom Kippur, every day of atonement, what were they reminded of? Mm -hmm. 
Every time that high priest would place his hands on that scapegoat's head and pronounce the sins of Israel on that goat and it walked out of the gates, what were they reminded of? Every year. But in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance made again of sin every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Now, many times when you read that or have someone uh, in, from the religious world and you're talking about Hebrews chapter 10, they'll say, you can't, you can't buy your way out of sin with blood. That's what chapter 10 verse 4 says. That's not what chapter 10 verse 4 says. What chapter 10 verse 4 says is it's not equal. The blood of bulls and goats won't do it. Let's keep going. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering uh, thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Stop right there. Why? Why in this world did Jesus ever put on a body? Let me ask you a question. This is not a trick question, although I know it's going to sound like it is. I know it's going to sound like it is, but it's not. Can God die? Shake or nod. Would you like to explain Jesus? The only reason Jesus Christ is sent and put on a body is to die as our sacrifice because the sheep and the goats are not enough. It doesn't equal out. Notice verse 6. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then I said, I, lo, come, in the volume of this book is written, to do thy will, O God. Turn back one page to chapter 9. If you want to get the entirety of that particular idea, read 9 and 10 together. But let me, let me show you where this idea starts in verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. If Jesus doesn't come, if Jesus is not the sacrifice, it doesn't matter how many bulls and goats and sheep we sacrifice. It doesn't matter if we rounded up every single one of them on this earth and killed them all at one time. It wouldn't matter if we drove them to extinction all in one day. It's still not going to be enough. Because the sacrifice must equal the sin. I want you to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Are you there? You see them in the garden? You see them gathered around that tree. I want you to go back four minutes before that tree incident that's not found within the Scripture. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Were Adam and Eve perfect from creation? Yes. Were they perfect right before that temptation? Absolutely. What about the time they reached down to about Genesis chapter 3 
in verse number 17 after all the punishments are handed out. Were they perfect then? Okay. Did a perfect man sin? Yes. What's going to have to be equal in order to save that man? A perfect man's going to have to die. In order for it to be equal, in order for it to pay the cost, a perfect man's going to have to die. Goats, sheep, oxen, turtle dove, pieces of grain, parts of, of grape juices. It's, it's all going to be sacrifices, but it's never going to be enough. And it's only going to be a placeholder until the cross finds itself in human history. It's only going to be a placeholder until Jesus finds himself outstretched on that cross saying it is finished and he dies. And the perfect man dies to save an imperfect race. Let me give you one more. You cannot have fullness in eternity without having faithfulness in the present. You can't have fullness in eternity without having faithfulness in the present. There has been a long debated idea from those who would study and understand what the Bible say to those who would hold to some sort of religious dogma that says a man cannot lose his salvation. I'd like for you to explain to me Judas, Demas, and Peter. It is the fact that when we go down in that watery grave of baptism, after hearing what God has to say and believing those things, after repenting of our sin and confessing that Jesus is the Christ, that we are raised to walk in a new of life and we have promised to our heavenly father that I'm going to live this life and I'm going to live it faithfully to you that has been the mantra for everyone who's drying themselves off after they've obeyed the gospel it's also the fact that when that happens Satan began to turn up the heat because at one point he had you and now he doesn't. And unfortunately, as an enemy of hell, you are now on the radar. And he's going to get you back. Or he's going to die trying. The scary idea of man, of the, of the dogma, man cannot lose his salvation, is that it just... Sounds so good. If I have those days where I'm not right, if I have those days where I choose to not be right, if I have those days where I choose to turn my back on God, I can still do those and still fall to that temptation and God will still have to accept me. Brethren, let me, let me say this just as plainly as I possibly can. 
God never let his son get away with that idea. Why in the world would he let me? Am I going to have those days? Probably. But it is God who has made the provision for those days. It is God who said, I know, I know that you have a choice, but you also, while breath is still in your lungs, still have the choice to come back home. You still have the opportunity to come back to me. You still have the opportunity to understand that God is the source of, of grace and that the law is the source of, the, of love and that Jesus Christ is the source of that salvation. You can come back home. But once again, the fly in that ointment is that I have to choose to do it. I have to say I'm going to, and I have to follow through with those things, or else it's just a bunch of hot air. You're standing before God. What does He say? Only you, only you know exactly what He will say to you, but you do know. What does he say? Are you happy with that? If the answer is no, let me say to you, let me plead with you. Perhaps no one has ever said this to you. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. You can change. You, you can come back to God or you can come to God for the first time. He's still here. He's always been here. But you're going to have to make the step. Choose to do that right now while we stand and sing for your encouragement.